Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Well, it's my privilege to be continuing our series in Resurrection Stories today. Uh, We've had a couple of instalments so far. I am number three. Um, And we're going to be reading from John 20. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, um, feel free to turn there. And we'll pick it up from verse 24. But before we do, let's just have a bit of a recap, setting the scene of what has happened so far in John chapter 20. Because what we'll be reading today will be uh, much easier to to grasp the... um, significance of what's happening if we've understood what's gone on before. So at the beginning of chapter 20, we have Mary Magdalene um, discovering the empty tomb. And she goes and tells the disciples, and then Simon Peter and John, if you remember, they have that running race where John makes the specific mention that he won that running race uh, in order to go and reach the tomb first. And they see the empty tomb as well. They see the linen clothes that are, are put to one side. And then in 11 to 18, John 20, 11 to 18, Mary Magdalene has met the risen Jesus in that section and reports her encounter back to the disciples. And that's what John focused on to kick off our our series. And then unlike Luke's gospel, which Neil focused on with the road to Emmaus, um, John's account is in John. There's a lot of Johns today. John the gospel writer, not John Hodges. John's account then goes on to to talk about the evening of that day when Mary Magdalene Um, first met Jesus. So John's account doesn't include the road to Emmaus. We have the evening of the first Easter, if you like. And then 19 to 23 is where I just want us to just sit for quite a little while before we focus on our next portion of scripture and just set some context as to what's gone on. Because John writes of a locked room and inside that locked room are the disciples. And we're told that the door was locked because they were fearful, fearful of the Jews. And specifically, this means the sort of Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And that's the term um, that describes the Supreme Council of Jewish leaders. Um, So chief priests, elders, and scribes. And they had jurisdiction over Jewish matters. And it was this group that was the driving force that ensured that Jesus was betrayed, that he was falsely arrested, that he was falsely accused, that he was unjustly judged, and that ultimately he was condemned to death on the cross. So although the disciples have have heard the report from Mary, we've had two of them that have seen the empty tomb themselves, they're afraid, afraid that the crucifixion of Jesus was only the beginning and that they might also be accused of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. And some translations... um, Describe the disciples as being together at this point. A little bit like the idea in Acts where they were together and held everything in common. But actually, there isn't any, there's no such Greek word in the text, so Bible Hub tells me. Um, and a little shout out for that website. Just a variation from Bible Project. Bible Hub is a website that, um, that offers an online parallel Bible. And you can see the original Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew and cross-reference it with our, with our translations. And actually, there's no word of together there. So although the majority of them are in this same space, we don't sense that they're united and unified with one purpose. They've become fragmented at the point of Jesus' arrest. And we're away off from them being the ones who were um, the founders of the early church. We were away off from the unifying and commissioning moment of Pentecost. And so here we find them fearful and hiding. 
And then suddenly, Jesus appears. Doesn't knock on the door. Doesn't come through the door. He just appears. So this door that was locked to keep out those from whom they were afraid, it doesn't seem to keep out the presence and the persons, uh, the presence and the person of Jesus. And he speaks to them and he says, "Peace be with you." Neil, you prayed peace over me this morning in pre-service prayer. We're going to be thinking about that quite a lot today. He says, peace be with you. And John, the gospel writer, he records Jesus saying that three times before the end of chapter 20. And it's a completely typical Jewish greeting. I also wonder whether Jesus said it because the disciples might have been um, a bit alarmed by suddenly seeing the physical form of a dead man. That is surprising, Peace be with you. But I do wonder whether John actually has a bit of um, another point that he's trying to make. Something where Jesus' greeting of peace be with you takes on a greater meaning in these verses. Because actually this peace echoes back to an offer of peace that Jesus gave. In verses that are unique to John's gospel, there's two. John 14, 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And John 16, 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so I wonder, as we read this greeting of Jesus, peace be with you, if we're meant to be uploading that context into our minds, this peace that Jesus offers, like Shalom of the Hebrew Scriptures, is this complete peace where Jesus is offering both the peace of God and peace with God. Then Jesus goes on to show the disciples the marks in his hand, the marks in his side, and he speaks peace to them a second time. And he tells them that as he is sent, so he is sending them. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And in John's gospel, this is an incredibly weighty and long anticipated scene because at the start of his gospel, we have John the ba- another John, John the Baptist this time, uh, introducing Jesus as the one uh, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here he is doing just that. And I think I wonder whether John breathe, uh, Jesus breathing on the disciples as he releases the life of the Spirit is also meant to, in our minds, link us to Genesis 2, where God breathes life into the humans. So we're to understand, I, I think, this moment, uh, there's a new creation happening. This is a new creation that Jesus is signaling, a creation that's here to engage and to redeem and to transform the one that's already here, where all things are made new. And then John records a final sentence of Jesus in this scene from verse 23. He says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Richard, you just gave a little raise of your eyebrows at that, and that's how I feel. I feel a little uncomfortable with those verses on first reading. Why is Jesus talking to them about forgiveness in this way? Are the disciples suddenly somehow determiners of God's forgiveness? Is that what he means? I don't think that's it. I think this is an extraordinary moment where Jesus is showing the disciples the power 
of his death and his resurrection. And this is why. Think back to the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man early on in his ministry. And we're told that um, the paralyzed man, he had a group of friends and they had faith that Jesus could heal their friend. And so they took him, they took their, their friend to go and see Jesus. And Jesus was in a house, but there were crowds around him and it was bustling. And so they lowered their friend through the roof. Do you know this story? So that they could get to Jesus. And who remembers? What did Jesus say to this man when he saw the faith of his friends? Anyone remember? Your sin, I, heard, I heard the murmuring. Your sins are forgiven. And there were Jewish leaders around at this time, and they jump in with their questions. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was groundbreaking, what he was saying in that moment. And so if the disciples, as we go back to this locked room, if they are to represent Jesus and be empowered to do what he did in his ministry, which first and foremost was to proclaim forgiveness in a way that only God could, they must be able to do that in his name. They must be able to pronounce forgiveness in the name of Jesus, something that before Jesus was something that belonged to God alone. So in this moment, in these slightly unusual verses, I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And I think it links back to those verses in Matthew that says, whatever you bind on earth shall be, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He is revealing that he is sharing his divine authority with them. What an extraordinary encounter. That's our scene as we pick up from verse 24. Like, can you feel the weight and the significance of that moment as Jesus appears in the locked room? It's one not to be missed, right, is his follower. Only someone does. So let's read verses 24 to 28. They're going to come up on the screen behind me. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means a twin, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples are in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. There it is that third time. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Other translations say, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
We're just going to do a very simple working our way through this this morning. And I just want to notice a few things. First of all, Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. How gutting for him. He didn't see Jesus. He didn't hear his words. He didn't receive the gift of peace that Jesus brought his grieving friends. He didn't see his hands or his side. He didn't hear the commission. He didn't have the spirit breathed onto him. He didn't have the revelation of the divine authority that was being shared with him. Instead of being part of that story, he just heard about it. Like, how must that have felt? Was he afraid? Was he confused? Was he frustrated and disappointed? Did he feel forgotten? Did he feel bypassed? Why did Jesus show up when I wasn't even there? I'm one of the disciples. I followed him for all these years too. Why have I missed it? That's where I think my imagination would take me if I was in Thomas's shoes. So Thomas makes a decision as he responds to the others. And he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's made a decision. Thomas doesn't seem to doubt that his friends experienced something. He's not questioning that. What he doubts is the nature of their experience. And it leads him to be making a choice where he says that actually only the specific criteria that I set, only if that is satisfied, will I believe. He needed to see and he needed to touch Jesus' resurrected body. So only the evidence of his senses, of sight and of touch, would that satisfy and would it persuade him that the brutality and the finality of the cross had been overcome. Faith doesn't come through hearing, not for Thomas. And was that a rational, reasoned response? That may be. But I wonder, was it actually an emotional response of one of, I'm going to reject your story because of my own disappointment, because of my own fear, because of my own confusion? And this story may well be familiar to you. I'm sure it is to the vast majority sitting here. Maybe you've heard it in church before. Maybe you've read it yourself. Um, But it's also culturally familiar because it's the source of that phrase to be a doubting Thomas. Who's heard that phrase? I don't know that it's one that's common, but it's known, isn't it? To be a doubting Thomas, that kind of phrase to mean someone who needs evidence before they are willing to believe something. But I wonder if our familiarity with the story And that kind of cultural application to it can cause us to miss the value of what we're reading here. With our main response, our main takeaway being a sort of slightly light-hearted, but also disparaging of, oh, let's not be like Thomas. Don't be foolish. Don't do that. And I think if that's as much as we draw out of it, we risk communicating to ourselves and to others that to have questions or to have doubts isn't okay, that we need to push that away, push it deep down, and just believe through sheer force of willpower. That's not my takeaway from this. A few weeks ago, as we uh, began this series, we were discussing Thomas in our small group, a bit ahead of the series curve. I think we might now be behind somehow, but never mind. And then 
And the wonderful Katie Lifford. Is Katie here today? I haven't spotted her, I don't think. She, um, she offered this kind of ref- final reflection in the conversation. That, and she said, Thomas, what a gift to us as a character. Do you remember, Anna? It gives us space to question. And I've, I've really pondered his character since Katie said that and in preparation for this morning. And Thomas is only specifically mentioned on two other occasions, both of them in John's Gospel. And it, I think it does give us a little bit of a sense of what he might have been like. So the first occasion is in, is in John chapter 11. And it shows him as someone who is of courage and loyalty to Jesus, where he's willing to accompany Jesus um, and encourages the disciples to do the same on a pretty high-risk journey. And the second occasion is in John 14, and it portrays Thomas as a character who is unafraid to ask questions, to ask for clarity. And he asked Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And that question, so plainly, I'm a big fan of just plain, simple questions, plainly asked. That's what Thomas does here. It generated an answer from Jesus that has reverberated around the world since then and brought comfort and hope to millions. Does anyone know how Jesus responds to Thomas's question? How are we going to know the way? What does Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you know that's Jesus? Jesus said that because of Thomas's question? So Thomas might not be a pillar of faith at this moment in the story, but I'm really thankful for the space that he creates for our humanity, for our questioning, for our disappointment, for our frustration, for our requests of Jesus to meet us in the way that we think we need. Let's carry on. So a whole week passes by, a whole week of Thomas being at that point, but he was still there with the rest of the 10. Despite his doubt, Despite his disbelief, he remained with the group. And then we have this second, uh, second extraordinary encounter, which so closely mirrors the first. We have Jesus once again coming in to this locked room. He stands among them, and once again, for the third time now, he says, peace be with you. But there is one key difference this time, because Jesus is showing up for one purpose, one purpose alone. He's there to show a man that he is alive and well when that man didn't believe that he was. That's what he was there to do because his attention was on Thomas straight away. And he quotes Thomas's own words back at him. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now I've put those two verses together Because do you notice the similarity, the mirroring of language? There's such beauty and compassion and kindness in what Jesus is doing in this moment. Pete Gregg observed this in a recent Lectio 365, where he just, he drew out of this similarity that Jesus is in effect saying, I heard you when you thought I didn't care. I was present when you thought I was absent. Jesus already knew. He already knew Thomas's request. Thomas missed out on Jesus. 
But Jesus hasn't missed a thing of what's going on for Thomas. Do we see that in this mirroring of language here? So how does Thomas respond? You may well be familiar um, with this painting by uh, an artist called Caravaggio from uh, the early 1600s. It's called The Incredulity of Thomas, of St. Thomas. And it, um, you can't see all the detail in this lighting, but it almost depicts Thomas as, as a blind man where he's prodding and exploring Jesus' wounds. His finger's fully in there, right? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable, I think. It's gross, isn't it? Yeah. Thomas says she isn't recorded as doing that. That's not what we read. I think that's how it's often interpreted, but that isn't what John writes. What's recorded is that in response to Jesus' words, in response to that revelation that Jesus sees and cares and knows him, even when it seems otherwise, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And in that response, my Lord and my God, Thomas is making a huge theological declaration here. Because when he addresses Jesus as Lord in this way, what he means is that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So Thomas is making this leap from the depth of doubt to this height of Christological faith in recognizing the divinity of Jesus. To quote Pete Gregg, he says this, Thomas believes not just because he now sees, but because he now knows that he was seen when he didn't see and was heard when he didn't hear and was known when he felt bypassed and forgotten. And I'm amazed I've just read that without crying because that's the first time. I found that so moving to think on as I've been preparing for today that in those times when we might not see and we might not hear and we might feel bypassed and forgotten, have you ever felt like that? I have. When you hear the experiences of your friends, when you hear their relationship with Jesus and the way that they encounter him and you think, oh, I haven't quite in that way. That isn't what it's looked like for me yet. What this story of, Je of Thomas reminds us is that Jesus is the one who sees. Jesus is the one who knows us through every moment and situation. And when I look back over harder times in my life, I can see how God was quite clearly present and not absent. And I wonder if that's quite common for many of us, that when we look back, as life unfolds and we look back, we can see how God has been moving and, and working his way to make beauty for ashes and joy for mourning and praise for heaviness. And that's not to say it doesn't hold pain and it's not challenging, but we see him at work. So perhaps as we think on Thomas today, when we have those times of maybe feeling forgotten or feeling bypassed or feeling unsure as to where Jesus is in the midst of our story, we need to remember that what he says over us is, I see you when you can't see me. I hear you when you can't hear me. I know you when you don't feel known. Then we reach the final part of our story, verse 29. So Jesus consents to Thomas's terms. 
without Thomas even needing to ask him. But notice that Jesus doesn't commend it. And there's almost a gentle rebuke in how Jesus uh, responds. He says this in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas will go on to be an apostle. Tradition tells us he takes the gospel to India. He is a man who served Jesus faithfully and with devotion. But his faith is sparked into existence by sight. That's what he needed. But this story closes with a promise from Jesus to all of us who consider ourselves his followers. That although we have not seen his physical body, we believe him, we trust in him, we have faith in him, and we are blessed. I remember when I had my first moment of knowing that Jesus was my Lord and my God. They weren't the words I used, but it was that definite moment of moving from unbelief and doubt to faith and belief in the risen Jesus. And I want to close by telling you that story, if that's okay. I was 18. Uh, it was November 2001, Sunday morning, and I was standing in a, in a pretty small Baptist church in a little village just out, out, outside of Cambridge where I grew up. Um, and I'd been going pretty consistently for a few months, which was entirely due to the fact that I was dating someone who was in this church, who I'd met in my Saturday job at Tesco's, and he went to this church. And uh, in an effort to show some kind of interest in his life, I started going on as well. And, um, and it was fine. You know, not a groundbreaking experience, but very pleasant and um, full of nice people, not a bad way to spend a Sunday morning. So I thought worth doing to pursue this relationship. And um, I found a picture, actually. I've not, I've not thought about this church for a long time. I've got a picture to show you of what the inside of this church looked like. And it had a, yes, Adam, that is your cue. And um, it had a large, empty wooden cross front and center lit up from behind as you can see now to you that might seem um, ordinary perhaps to me it didn't because uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family and my only experience of um, I suppose uh, Christian imagery was through my Catholic school that I'd went to from the age of seven and if you know anything about the Catholic tradition their crosses always have the crucified Jesus on so the fact that this was an empty cross was already something that struck me as being different. And then projected onto the screen to the left. Can you see that screen? Uh, to the left of the cross were the words of a song by Matt Redman, which spoke of Jesus' sacrifice. It spoke of his saving grace. It spoke of him being exalted and sitting at the right hand of God. You might know it. The chorus goes, and once again, I look upon the cross where you died. Do you know that one? And as I was singing those words, mostly so I didn't stand out as being different, if I'm honest with you, I had this sudden and unexpected realization that I really believed what I was saying. I really believed that Jesus had died for me. I really believed that he was risen and sat at the right hand of the Father. 
And the only way I can describe it is, uh, is a feeling that I had come home. Not a physical home. Had very little to do with the physical place around me or the people around me, as wonderful as they were, are. Um, it was a feeling far less tangible and far more mysterious it's, it, of being spiritually home after being spiritually lost. That's kind of the best language I have for it, although that doesn't quite do it just justice. What a blessing. What a blessing to have encountered Jesus in a way that was and is life-changing, whilst never having seen him with my physical eyes. What a blessing to know that he can always be relied upon and trusted in through every circumstance. What a blessing to know that he will never leave me or forsake me. What a blessing to know that I am his daughter, that I am his friend, that I am his co-heir. What a blessing to be able to know that I can entrust all that I hold dear to him. What a blessing to know that nothing will separate me from his love. What a blessing to know that I have a confident hope that one day he will return and redeem all things for there to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what his blessing means to me and so much more. And that impacts my day. That impacts my life. Every single day. It shapes how I see things. It shapes how I interact with the world. It shapes how I respond to difficult situations. What a blessing to know him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll have your own story of moving from doubt to belief. And maybe it's a clear marker in time like mine and a clear memory. Maybe it's not. Maybe your story is different to that. But I invite you now to just reflect on that story, on your earliest memory from moving to doubt to belief in Jesus and reminding ourselves of the extraordinary yes that we have given to him and the extraordinary blessing that he gives us in return. Think on it. Cast your mind back. Maybe it's casting it back many, many years. Maybe it's far more recent. If you can, will you stand with me? Prayer team, I'd love you to come forward. Band, band if you're able to make your way forward as well. As we reflect on our stories, on the blessing and, and wonder and majesty of Jesus, there's two things that I'd like us to particularly uh, focus on for this ministry time today. First of all, if you don't know the Jesus that we've been talking about this morning, and you'd like to, we'd love to introduce you. Come and speak to me, come and speak to Ralph or to Jem or to anyone of this brilliant prayer team, and let's chat together, and you can get to know him. Secondly, if this story of Thomas tells us anything, it's that the risen Jesus can be found in woundedness and in grief, perhaps when we feel bypassed or forgotten, in doubt, in questioning, in self-protection, in confusion, frustration, and so many other places where we acknowledge what's going on within. And he wants to bring his freedom. He wants to bring his light 
He wants to show us that he is with us. His words over each one of us are, peace be with you. He is the one who heals. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's his words over us. He brings peace. We may have trouble in the world, but he has overcome the world. So if you have come here this morning and you know that it feels stormy within, or you feel bypassed, or you need to just come before him again and say, Jesus, show me that you're with me. Bring me your peace. Let's do that together. We've got an opportunity today to do that together. You can do that where you are, but I'd love to invite you to come out and come and get prayer with our prayer team, and you can do that with them. Band, over to you. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless. See you soon.